This is the Horse Radio Network. This is episode 9 of Equestrian Legends. Hello, I'm Chris Stafford, and my guest this week is horsewoman and fox hunter Edith Conyers. Edith Harrison Conyers was born on June 16, 1941, in Cincinnati, Ohio, as one of four children to Edmund Webster Harrison and Mary Huntington Harrison. Her parents' involvement with horses both for riding and driving, together with a passion for the countryside, laid the foundation to her equestrian and rural life that has embraced pastoral and equine causes alike. Highly regarded as a true horsewoman, her talents lie in transforming an ordinary horse into a reliable field hunter. She developed an early passion for fox hunting, which has taken her far afield and to leading the field as master of foxhounds. Closer to home in Kentucky, she has taken upon herself to clear the path for generations to come through her work with backcountry horsemen. First Lady of Kentucky Jane Bashir said, Edith Conyers is a long-time friend and mentor to me. Her vast knowledge and experience has helped to make me a better horsewoman and rider, and she has provided valuable input into the state's efforts to expand and improve our equine trails. Whenever we have a trail-related issue to resolve, we always look to Edith to help us identify a solution. She is truly an equestrian legend here in the horse capital of the world, and we are so proud that she makes her home here in the heart of the bluegrass. She will forever be remembered for her role as the first executive director of the Rolex Kentucky three-day event. In the early 90s, she was among a group of sports horse people that helped the PMU breeders in Canada increase the value of the foal by encouraging farmers to breed their draft mares to good, sound, well-conformed thoroughbred stallions. Following her early career in nursing, she turned her focus to producing sport horses until the late 1990s. Her passion for trail riding and wagon trains has taken her to far-off corners of the world. When she is at home, she is committed to her roles on a number of organisations to improve the future for horse lovers in the countryside, including as President of the Central Kentucky Backcountry Horsemen, a board member of the Kentucky Horse Council and Masterson Station Park. Edith was married to Ewell Powell Conyers, deceased, and has two daughters, Sarah and Elizabeth. Well, Edith, a life devoted to horses and the countryside, is that how you would sum up your past? Yes, I think so. Dedicated to, mainly to, to horses, but also to other animals as well. Yes. But you've downsized, I think, in recent years a little bit to something more manageable, but and mainly focusing your equestrian pursuits for your own pleasure now. Yes, that's primarily it. Um, for years and years, probably 30 years or more, I, I did spend a great deal of time just managing, breeding, owning, training, selling, buying fox hunting horses that then evolved into sport horses for eventing, show jumping. My kids grew up riding, and until so a great deal of that, I was just, my it was dawn to dusk in seven days a week, and 
So it was really a dedicated lifestyle. And I, I, today, I don't know how I did it all because I can't get in it half as much <laughs> in my life now. But um, I did. And then, then about 12 years ago, I downsized and decided I really just didn't want to do that that hard that long. So I moved to a smaller operation in 1999 and kind of geared my life more toward what I wanted to do and more toward traveling with my horses or to other horses to ride in various other places of the world. Well, we're going to talk a lot more about that, of course, and, and how you spend life now around the country roads, around the world, in fact, with your mules and ponies, which you drive, and I want to hear a lot more about the wagon trains, too. That sounds a lot of fun. Well, we'll get to all that, but let's just uh, rewind a little bit, Edith, back to the beginning. You were born, of course, uh, during World War II in 1941, as I said in my introduction, one of four children. Give us a picture of childhood, your very early days and early memories, Edith. Uh, I, I would say that it was sort of rural in an uptown way. We had about 12 or 15 acres. Uh, my father was a stockbroker in Cincinnati. Uh, my older sister, who is six seven years older than I am, then my brother, uh, who's four years older, and myself and a younger sister who's six years behind me. And my mother did not work. Um, we were about mm, 15 miles from downtown Cincinnati. Uh, my mother had spent a fair amount of her life before she was married on a farm, and so had a love for all animals of all sorts, and consequently we grew up with all sorts of animals. Not large numbers, because we didn't have a large property, but we we had uh, a horse and some ponies and the odd goat that we harnessed up and made work, and Newfoundland dogs who guarded us and our various ducks and geese that came through. Um, and pretty much it was a country lifestyle uh, east of Cincinnati, and we just played with ponies and played with play horses and played with all our little animals, you know, on and on and on. And my sister was, my older sister, who came first, was very horsey from the get-go, and my brother was not, we think, although he doesn't admit it, we think he was not horse-interested because his sisters were so horse-interested. So he did not get into horses himself until a little bit later on in life, in his 20s and 30s. Now that he's in his 70s, he's doing as much or more than I am with the horses again. So he's kind of come full circle. And then my, we spent a lot of time just playing with ponies, riding them, driving them, uh, in fact, I considered until I was a mid-teenager that probably my pony was my biggest source of my transportation to various places. I would ride from our house 45 minutes to an hour to go for swimming lessons or to play tennis with friends or to meet up with friends at various places. And I would ride to my friends' houses an hour, an hour and a half away to spend the weekend all with pony. It was my primary mode of transportation. 
you couldn't do that where I grew up now because even though the speed limit is the same, nobody abides it, and there's 20,000% more traffic than there used to be. But it was a it was a pretty fun lifestyle as I remember it, and the ponies taught me a great deal as a youngster, and I think it, that's held over for a long time in my life. It sounds a very idyllic childhood, um, and certainly given you the foundation to become the horsewoman that you're now so well known for, Edith, and of course have so much respect for. What do you think were the principles that your, your mother, who understand was very horsey too, and your father, what did they instill in you in those early days? That is a little bit tough to come up with instantly. Um, I think probably they instilled a, a, a great sense of responsibility in all of us because we truly had to take care of the animals. And we were supervised while doing it and made sure that we did it and did it correctly. And we couldn't just decide one day that we didn't feel like doing it. We, we had to do it. We, we had a lot of help at our, in our household in those days. But my parents both required us all to fulfill the responsibility of having and enjoying the animals. And I think that's held over greatly in my life today because if I say I'm going to do something, then I do it. I'm having a hard time saying no sometimes, but and so I get overwhelmed with the volunteer work that I get involved with now. But when I say I'm going to do something or I'm going to be there, I'm going to be there or I'm going to communicate otherwise if an emergency comes up. I, I'm frustrated in the work I do now on trails to hold work days or go to meetings or express interest in dealing with the Forest Service and the pub, other public land managers that my acquaintances and the people that I, not necessarily the people I ride with, but the people I meet while riding, um, especially in the last four years in here in Kentucky where I've been most involved in the last four years, they want a trail ride, but they don't want to put forth the effort to establish communication with public land managers, nor do they wish to come and wield a shovel or a lopper and trim limbs and cut trees and deberm trails and things like that. You have a core group of eight people out of hundreds and hundreds throughout the state that come and do the same work over and over and over again and to go to the same meetings, and they're always at the same meetings. So I feel frustrated by that, and I think my parents instilled in me a responsibility to myself and to others and to the land in, in all aspects and to the animals that we had to be a responsible person. So in those early days, Edith, and you were driving and riding your ponies, were you actually taking part in any disciplines at that time before you started fox hunting which we're going to talk a lot more about of course because I know what a passion that has become for you and you had the influence of of going out to ranches out west as a child too which it doesn't surprise us that you are doing what you're doing now of course if anyone knew your background so were there any particular disciplines you thought you had idols that maybe I want to go show jumping or eventing in those early days or the pony club what what were your earliest uh, influences in that regard that's interesting in that what in living in cincinnati when i was growing up there was no pony club in that area uh i was 
just happy to ride and happy to have my pony as a mode of transportation when my parents couldn't take me someplace, which was frequent when you have four children that spread that far apart doing all kinds of different things. My older sister started fox hunting first, and then she kind of gravitated over into local hunter-jumper stuff. I really, at age 8 to 10 or 12, had no... Um, uh, no ideas of disciplines. We did not have eventing. We did not have pony club. Uh, we had some hunter jumper shows, uh, but really nothing particularly big in our area, except maybe in Lexington, Kentucky, where the the junior league horse show was sort of the biggest thing around that I remember. And until I really started fox hunting and grew old enough to start competing with my sister. I didn't. I didn't have any ideas at all. I didn't. I didn't gravitate toward anything because there really wasn't much. Now we did. A group of us kids, as we got to sort of preteens and teens, we started putting on the type of show that has disappeared in this day and age. And they were put on by kids and their parents, but primarily the kids. And they were called horse, pony, and pet shows. And they were a one-day or one-afternoon affair that had uh, pet show classes. They had lead line classes. They had egg and spoon classes. They had, I mean, it wasn't completely a gymkhana, and it wasn't a completely a dog and cat show. It wasn't, com- it wasn't hunter-jumper per se, although we had a kind of quasi-equitation classes, but we didn't know they were called that. Um, but we had them probably two or three times, sometimes in the summer, two or three times a month, at least once a month. And I find my fondest memories are of those, and they probably started in my life when I was 9, 10, 11, and went on until I went away to school and college. Then the whole movement, Pony Club came in, and that kind of took over. And in the 70s and 80s, eventing started. Um, so it was just sort of the local horse shows that we tried to go to, and then these little horse pony and pet shows that I was involved in putting on as a kid. And I loved them. I just loved them. Everybody came out of the woodwork, and they most people rode to these little things, and they were um, they were just a bunch of fun. And we even had little tiny silver trophies. I still have some of these little tiny, tiny silver I mean, you know, plated silver, not just pewter or pot pot metal. Um, and they were engraved. I mean, we got people to sponsor those things. And they're they're truly my of my younger years. Those are my fondest memories. That and fox hunting in the introduction. Um, when I got sort of 10, 12, 13, and and there was a wonderful army man named Major Taylor who was in the Cincinnati area, and I remember finally taking lessons and trotting forever without stirrups and posting without stirrups and doing all kinds of really hard stuff, exercises without reins. Those things don't happen much anymore either. It's just like a whole different scenario 60 years later. But those are my really fondest ones at that time. And then, of course, you went to boarding school in Pennsylvania, Griff School, where I believe you did some interscholastic competitions there, too, and got into jumpers. Yes, I did, and I enjoyed that tremendously, and that was probably my first 
exposure was going up there, and even though they didn't call it eventing, the interscholastic stuff had a, a flat class, which today would be dressage, and they had a little cross-country course, which was like an outside hunter course, but a little further afield. And then they had a ring jumping class. I can't remember what it was called, but it was not called eventing. But it, after I got into eventing more in the 70s here, I, I look back at that time and say, well, gee, you know, we did that in central Pennsylvania, but I don't remember it being called that. And it was all between the local high schools and colleges. And probably at that time, I started to learn about the other great folks of the horse world. Um, uh, you know, I was privileged to, to go to the Pennsylvania National. I was privileged to go to some of the other big shows where I saw, um, you know, some of the wonderful folks like Billy Steinkraus and George Morris and uh, Kathy Kushner and, you know, as time went on, all these others. And I, I didn't know them personally, but I certainly just was totally awed and loved going to watch them ride. And that that was a really, really big impression in which probably started me thinking show jumping and probably why my older daughter does show jumping today. What was particularly appealing about watching those jumpers then, Edith, because they obviously regarded as great horsemen, the ones that you've mentioned, and devoted to jumping. What did you pick up from those early lessons of watching them? I'm not sure that it was anything beyond awe and loving the horse and loving the big, bigger jumps that were more, you know, obviously more impressive than what I personally was doing. And the names were just everywhere in our lives. It, it, Greer has a significant riding program, and I participated all three years I was there. And I, I, it was just all those names were hot on our list. I mean, I saw the, the Italian guy, Denzio, one time, and I thought, oh, my, I'm really uptown now. <laughs> you know, I've seen the best of the best. And it was after Jack Burton's involvement, to, to a certain extent, but he is one of my idols, and I've known him for years and years and years. And when I put on the 78 World Championships, which obviously was the first international three-day event that had been held in this country, he, when I had a question I couldn't solve, I turned to Jack Burton for two years. And he, I am sure, got me through that process very accurately from an FEI level. And I have just been totally devoted to him for years and years and years. Still am. I still just love to see him and love to talk to him. Okay. And I, I don't think there was any one thing other than the awesomeness of it and the fact that the names were in front of me all the time. Well, before we move away from your childhood, I want to just take you down memory lane to those trips out west when you spent time with your family in the summers doing some real backcountry riding, which must have stood you in good stead for what you do now, Edith. Tell us oh, yeah. a, a little bit about those and, and the memories that you have from exploring the Wild West. I think the earliest memories I have are when my family went to a ranch that's no longer in existence in Jackson Hole, 
called uh, Barbie Sea Ranch, and we went there for a number of years, starting even before I re- really remember, but I do remember that as being the first ranch we attended, and I was probably five or six. And Jackson Hole was a wild and woolly town, and my father's parents had been there before, and so he had followed in their footsteps and loved it. But, I mean, in Jackson Hole in the bar, there were folks carrying guns on their hips. <laughs> Every once in a while, you'd hear some fight in the back street. That's all obviously changed and now become a very tourist mecca. But it was a wild west back then in the 40s, middle to late 40s. And then from there, we progressed various different ranches. Um, the one we probably, the next one, we probably spent the most time uh, a t- a in the summers was the Sunlight Ranch in Sunlight Valley, which is at the base of the Absorca Ranches, a range of mountains west of Cody, Wyoming. And we went there for years and years and years in the summer. And some years I'd go to some camp somewhere, and some years I would go there. Uh, the, we, we were involved with all aspects. It was a Hereford cattle ranch as well as a guest ranch. We helped put up hay with horses. Um, we we didn't ever do any pack trips out of that ranch because they didn't do them, per se. was not a big ranch. Probably if they were totally full, it was about 40 people, which was a very nice size. Um, we just were involved in all of the aspects, and the owners of the ranch welcomed the participation in everything from milking the cow at 4 in the morning to driving the the rake with a team of horses, which was even a struggle in the 50s for me as a not-quite-teenager to get the harness on. Uh, but we we just did a little bit of everything, um, helped move cows, helped stack hay, helped, and we rode for pleasure as well. Then during those years, periodically, we my father loved pack trips, and my mother did, so every once in a while, generally not the whole family, it was my parents and one or two of us, or just my parents and one of us, uh, would do a pack trip with an outfitter and go for a week at a time or ten days at a time back into the wilderness areas um, in western Wyoming to start with, and then eventually we went on some in the Bob Marshall and scapegoat wildernesses, including my favorite place in the whole world is the Chinese Wall in Bob Marshall. Uh, one year I went to camp in Montana at Holland Lake, and we, I can't remember the name of camp, whether it was Holland Lake Camp, but it was a horse camp, and they, we went to the ranch, and then we took, there were maybe 15 or 20 girls, and we took a pack trip that year that was probably 10 days, and we did participate in packing and cooking and cleaning up and setting up camp and the whole ball of wax. Um, then after that, there were, there were, as I got older and my parents didn't do pack trips any longer, then I've done several since, mostly in Montana. And I have to say that I, I was observant and I loved every bit of it. And there were certain things that I learned that, and I, and I'll give you one example that I learned when I was probably in my teens or twenties by observation. It was the cowboys would hobble a wrangle horse out on a pack trip with a hobble on a back leg or a front leg to a picket stake so they could graze. And I thought, hmm, you know, never seen that done. Seen high lines, picket lines, 
tied to trees, between trees, etc. But I had never seen this, and I never ever used it till about ten years ago, when I started doing the wagon trains, and I had these ponies. And I have a very nice wagon, and the ponies, if I had tied them to it, A, would keep me awake, and B, would chew the wagon up. So I taught the ponies to picket on a picket stake with a rope to a one-leg hobble. And I use it to this day. But I kept it in my sort of brain that I had seen this, and I thought, I don't need this now, but maybe someday this will come in handy. And lo and behold, it did. And so a lot of things like that, camp cooking, uh, I don't do a whole lot anymore unless I'm on a wagon train and it's up to us to cook our own meals. But just all of that uh, surroundings and doings that I did on those stood me to good stead for many, many years. And of course, while you were at uh, University of Colorado Boulder, you also got exposed to a lot of other Western activities too, which has given you a very rounded experience of Western and Eastern riding. Yes, I, I, I got a lot of that. I, I was on the collegiate rodeo team, and I did a little of everything. I mean, we didn't just barrel race. It was the rodeo teams back then in the in the late '50s, '60s were, you know, we rode the bareback bucking horses, which I didn't do very much and I didn't do for very long because I wasn't entranced with falling off. But I did uh, I did team roping, I uh, did uh, goat tying, I did um, just a bunch of stuff through that that I never would have done. I had, we had a friend there who had quarter horses who lived nearby in Boulder and I even did a little showing of pleasure horses and things uh, while I was there. I didn't, uh, I carried it on maybe later to some of my young Hunt horses, if I bought one, then they were young and I didn't want to jump them much, and they they were that sort of horse that would kind of blend into the local fair Western classes. I would ride them a year in Western in the Western pleasure classes just to give them mileage. Uh, I remember one mare specifically absolutely could not jump as a three-year-old. I mean, she hung everything down and tore everything up. and So I said, okay, you'll just have to go be somebody else's pleasure horse. So I showed her for a whole year just on in flat classes, Western and English. And a year later, with trail riding and those classes and the education she got from that, I tried her to jump her again, and lo and behold, she could jump. And I just needed to let her mature and have some different muscles develop. And it taught me a lot that I didn't have to do that, but what I did do enhanced the, the ability of the horse. And then I did had a, a professor at the college that at the University of Boulder who rode saddle horses, and she didn't show much, but that's the way she rode, and those were her horses. And so she took me out and introduced me to the saddle seat, which I had never participated in before. I've never since, but I, I, I liked it. I mean, it was fun. It was different, and I, I learned a lot of just how those folks do things. Well, of course, after college came thoughts of a career. What was the catalyst to taking up n nursing as a profession, Edith? I don't know, but I do remember my father being very disappointed that I wanted to go to nursing school. And that kind of, I don't know whether it made me mad, and I can't remember that far back, but I can't remember whether it made me mad and I was more determined. But when I, I couldn't decide what I wanted to do. I didn't want to be a secretary. I didn't want to be an archaeologist. I didn't want to be an engineer. I didn't want to be a doctor. I didn't want to be a veterinarian. I couldn't figure out what I wanted to do. 
And I went as a courier to the Frontier Nursing Service, which is a volunteer, you know, driving, going out with the nurses on the horses in the outpost areas and driving people to the hospital from eastern Kentucky. I think that was the catalyst that sent me to nursing school. And then when my father thought that was a lowly profession to be in, I decided that's exactly what I was going to do. So I did it. So you rebelled against your parents and... Well, yes, slightly. We didn't talk about it. (laughs) (laughs) And and that took you on to a career as a nurse practitioner. Tell us some of your memories of that and the experiences that you had as a professional. Oh, that was kind of extensive, too. I didn't work long many years, but I did a whole lot of different stuff. I, I first worked in... Well, I first worked out of school in Arizona, where I finished in the the intensive care unit, cardiac care unit, and emergency room at a hospital in Tucson for several years. Then I moved back to Cincinnati, and I became a, um, I worked worked at Christ Hospital in Cincinnati for several years as an IV technician. That hospital at the time started all of the intravenous medicines and drips in the hospital, in the emergency room, in the x-ray, in the surgery, emergencies on floors. We maintained them. We did. I did that for several years, which was really very interesting because I had not had a whole lot of experience in that. And I must say I got really good at getting things. I was sought after and and even in later nursing, I was always one who could, in fact, get difficult things. It's kind of like doing the same thing under emergency situations. I just did that all day long or all night long every day and became very good. And it was a an interesting concept. I've never seen a hospital do that since, where they have a whole department that does nothing but the intravenous therapy stuff. I've just never seen it. It was just interesting. And then I married and moved down to Kentucky, and I started working just helping out in surgery and receptionist stuff for a veterinarian, a small animal veterinarian, in Lexington. And from there, I went to, in the meantime, I was looking for human medicine jobs, and the Fayette County or Lexington Health Department uh, hired me, and I worked full-time for them for three or four years, I guess, in maternal and child health, which meant you were not working in a fancy doctor's office doing prenatal care. You were out on the streets in the back of nowhere, in the, I won't call them all slums, but pretty close, doing prenatal care and trying to get women to come to hospitals and doing new baby care, and we held clinics, and that was a whole new experience as well. Took me back to my frontier nursing days a little more closely. And then from there, I went to work at an HMO, uh, which was called the Hunter Foundation. It's now defunct in Lexington. And they put me and two other gals through school to become nurse practitioners. And we were probably the first three in the central Kentucky area, and we were actually nurse practitioners just prior to it becoming a national organization with board testing. I mean, we ultimately did that, but we we were called nurse practitioners before there was a, a board certification. So it was kind of interesting. The three of us had a one-on-one, two-year program around while we worked, 
at UK, at the University of Kentucky, and and so we came out and we worked at the Hunter Foundation as that. I must say, the upside of that was that it increased my salary challenge a whole lot more, which was quite delightful. And then when the Hunter Foundation folded, I went back to the health department and I worked as uh, I worked for, as the nurse practitioner for the jail downtown. That was the most unpleasant job I ever did, and I ultimately was so glad when the World Championships and the three-day event started and I could become involved in that because I really wanted out of the jail. And so that's kind of ended my nursing, practicing nursing career. So you wanted out of jail, but you, you, you yeah. mentioned there that uh, also you had an increase in salary, which must have helped you with that lifelong passion that you've had with fox hunting and supporting what has been a truly a, a life's habit, hasn't it? It started very yes. early, didn't it, as a young yes. child? started at age eight, and I've hardly missed hunting somewhere, maybe only a few times a year, but I've hardly missed any years since that age of eight, except for odd broken legs and things that prevented me. One year it was a broken back and one year it was a broken leg and another year it was another broken leg. So, you know, there have been a few years where I didn't get a hunt in, uh, but not very many. And I was just so passionate about it that I would hunt anywhere, anytime. I would never hesitate to call. And as soon as we got mobile with trucks and trailers, uh, it took me all over everywhere. And one of the, I think one of the two special things I ever did for myself were two years in a row I did what is called the Western Hunt Challenge Tour, which I don't know if you're familiar with or not, but it was, and I think it's still going on, but it was to highlight Western hunts from sort of Kansas City on westward. And it was two, two weeks in the spring, kind of March, and it was a marathon. You started, the two years I did it, we started in Kansas City and we hunted there. And you would, you would get up at some ungodly hour and clean your horse and go hunting and get all dressed up. And then you'd come home and take care of your horse and you'd party and you'd then jump in your truck and drive to the next location. And this, we, we hunted, I want to say, 15 times in 17 days. And that's a feat. And you ended up in Reno, Nevada. And you went from there to Iowa to Nebraska to um, Colorado to Wyoming to New Mexico to Arizona to Reno. And you hunted. There were judges, two judges, and people just followed along. Some people came for a couple of days. And I, did a, I decided if I was going to go that far, I was going to do the whole thing. So I did. I took two horses each time. A friend of mine from England, Barbara Rich, came and joined me both years for part of it. Uh, met lots and lots of wonderful friends and made wonderful contacts. But I'll tell you what, it was a marathon. You were cleaning, eating, drinking, hunting, driving, and repeating day after day after day. But it was the most exciting fun, just hunting with all those different packs on different game. Rarely did you ever have a blank day, but if you did have a blank day, the foxhound work was wonderful to watch. Uh, so I, those those two years were probably the two highlights. 
as well as the European hunting I've done in well, England. Yes, you mentioned, well, a long way from the Camargo hunt when you were just a young yeah. child of eight years old. You went on then, of course, to be joint master of foxhounds at the Iroquois Hunt Club here in Kentucky. Yeah. And, and you've hunted is it with something like 65 hunts literally all over the world. Can you pick out any one of those, in especially overseas, Edith, that you were really passionate about, were one of your favorite hunts? In America, it was Rose Tree when Jody Murtaugh was there. And that was in central Pennsylvania. That was my very favorite. I considered the very best hunting I had ever done anywhere. And I had never, ever thought about it, what was my favorite one, until Ned and Nina Bonney asked me one time, of all the places I'd been to hunt, what, what did I think was the favorite or the best? And I thought a minute and said, oh, unequivocally, Rose Tree Hunt and with Jody Murtaugh. It was phenomenal and I could sort of expound on it forever but we don't have enough time but the hound work the game the country the the leading of the field where we were always in the right place at the right time always passionate Jody's passion was good hounds and good hunting and making sure the people saw everything that was going on without making a lot of to do about it and I just don't remember ever seeing so much game in the form of foxes primarily, such good hound work, such good management and, and hunting of the hounds, and leading of the field. I mean, it's just all wrapped up in one package. I've not hunted there since he's left, so I don't know if it's still the same. I think that's sort of a special combination when you get it all together, it really turns the light bulb on. Uh, in Europe, um, I'd say in England, I've probably hunted with 10 packs in England, and I've enjoyed all of them, from the farmer's pack to the corn. I guess probably I've hunted more with the corn and the cottesmore, and I know a lot of people there, so probably they're my favorites, but it's all good over there. It's really wonderful. Ireland's the same way. And I stag hunted in France one time, which was quite exhilarating and very different. Um, but, you know, I've never have trotted sparse fast in my whole life. And I loved it. I, I just have never had a chance to go back and do more. Well, the 70s and the 80s were a particularly busy time of your life. And we obviously want to uh, talk more about fox hunting and, and how it led to other things. But also, during that period, during, as you mentioned earlier... The Rolex Kentucky three-day event came about and you were its first executive director, Edith, and will be well-remembered in Kentucky for that, of course, apart from yeah. other things. Tell us how that came about and how significant that was to you in your career as a horsewoman. Well, it certainly changed my life because we had not ever hosted anything in Kentucky bigger than a one-day horse trials. And it was really barely beginning here in the early 70s. And when, um, when Decine, when, when Bruce Davidson won in 1974, the USA, he won the individual gold medal at the three-day championships at Burley in, in 74. And when that enabled the United States to put bids in to host it for 1978. And so when Jane Atkinson, who is the 
most recent past executive director of the three-day event here, um, and myself, Carol Mangione, and Sarah Morgan were all involved with the local eventing that was happening, and we went to the Department of Parks here here in Kentucky and said, you have this wonderful facility, you want to develop it, you're planning to open it in 1978, and we really, really feel you should put together a group and put a bid in to host this as your opening for the horse park in 1978. Well, it was sort of, you know, that worked. They did it. They started talking to people, and they put the bid in, and we formed an organization called Equestrian Events, uh, got more and more local people involved, and then we were awarded it, which was really exciting. And then, of course, you know, the, the national organization of the USCTA then was obviously heavily involved in what were we doing and could we do it and would could they recommend us to the FEI to be a host and so Neil Ayer came to one of our little horse trials and noticed a lot of good stuff that we were doing especially enhancing the volunteers experience at these things and recognizing them and so he said he felt we should host it well that uh, when it all came about, then Equestrian Events was solidly formed, and we then sort of structured working toward the 1976 event and the two in 1977, all of which were preparatory events for the World Championships. Having never put on anything that big, nor anything international, it was a case of, oh my gosh, we've invited the world, and what happens if they come? They, we did invite them, and they did come, and it was a huge success. And my secretary, Virginia Kane, who is about to be 94 this year, I think, she and I traveled to Europe in the winter time to talk to people in the Burley office, the badminton office, um, Wolfgang Feld in Germany, and we took notes and we talked to the secretaries, and we did all of our homework because I discovered when the state thought it was wonderful to go to these big events while they're going on, you don't learn anything about how to put them on. So we spent two winters doing that, and it was extremely helpful. I, I just can't say how helpful it was, and as a result, we met some really, really wonderful people who told us all kinds of funky things that would happen, like the Russians or the Bulgarians or somebody would come or the Polish and they would need, they'd say they needed five hotel rooms and then they would all, 20 of them, stay in one room and they'd sell the other rooms. And so they, they gave us pointers on, you know, what sort of pitfalls to look for. They, the, the, the former head of Burley Horse Trials told us over dinner one night, he said, I think after a long, long talk all afternoon, he said, I think you all will do a fine job as long as you solve the problem of the loo. So we wrote that in our notes, and we had porta-potties in every nook and corner, and we had arrangements to move them to every other nook and corner day by day. And I think we solved that. Um, but it, it was a very gratifying, very educational, very maturing experience to take this on. It couldn't have been done without the thousands and thousands of people who did all the other jobs that I couldn't do. And I remember sitting at my desk days saying, 
this is a job I could do best myself, but I can't do it. So I would spend hours trying to figure out the right person to do a certain job and then delegate it. And the good Lord said, delegate, figure it out. Well, it clearly established yourself uh, with the recognition that you had in the eventing world for being an organizer, Edith, because you were invited to be the executive director for the 1984 Los Angeles Olympics. Yes. But it's not something that you could uh, commit to at that time, I believe, because you had so much else going on in your life, and you were turning, I think, back towards your farm and and horses and for what you've... Uh, become so well known for and that is of course turning horses into really good field hunters and sport horses is is another passion isn't it it's something that you do very naturally I did I don't do it anymore I used to I used to just that used to be my passion and when I was phasing out of of running this and the, the LA Olympics were coming up and they were soliciting my help for that to become the director uh, my kids were becoming teenagers. My farm was getting busier. I was liking it more and more and needing to spend more and more time at home. And so that kind of evolved into just not being the best place to take preteens and teenagers to Los Angeles and be so busy inviting the world to come again for several dis- several different disciplines. <laughs> so I, I made a, a conscious decision not to do that. And uh, I was interested, Alan Balch, who was here in Lexington for quite a while, uh, was the one who was trying to get me to come and do it. And, I, you know, I just figured he'll for- he forgot me after all the years. And he was here in Lexington, and a friend of mine was talking to him. And I don't know how my name came up, but she told me later, she said, oh, yes, he spoke very highly of you and said he absolutely remembered you and would have, you know, I didn't ever see him because he was busy with a with the USEF stuff all the time, and I was not flying in those circles anymore. But I was interested that the conversation came up and he talked nicely and remembered that I had, in fact, been contacted. Talked a lot, actually, about not going. Well, you were also associated with very good horses, too, along the way. As you said, you produced a lot of sport horses as well as your field hunters. And one of those well-known event horses we should mention of course was poltroon tell us his story because he probably would rank amongst one of the stars of your stable at the time absolutely uh it was a mare about 15 one hand pinto mare out of a show a colored show pony by a thoroughbred stallion friends in cincinnati gave her to me as an untouched four-year-old um, you know we were eventing at the time with very low level i was fox hunting my kids were busy, the things, you know, those things come along. I went to get her, and she'd not ever been cared for. Her feet were horrible. She didn't know how to lead. You can get a halter on her head, but she didn't even know how to lead. And then, of course, she ultimately, and not with any pre-meditation at all, she ended up at the Fontainebleau Alternate Olympics in 1980, she just started out as a regular little old horse that was going to go, I was going to figure out what she did best. So we hunted, and she was a little hot in the hunt field, but very manageable because she was difficult to break, which meant she got a lot more training than some of the others because she was so difficult. I have root canals and broken bones from the result of breaking her. Then we just went along, and then I was I was starting her in eventing, and... She did so well. She was second in her very first horse trials and against another a thoroughbred. And she just was brave and talented and a, 
and a, and a beautiful mover and a fabulous jumper. And I mean, these things were only two foot eight or nine, so it wasn't too spectacular. But she presented herself well. At the time, my kids were young, and I didn't. Re- I felt she should go on and do more than I had time to do. So I loaned her to a young woman friend of mine, who invented her through the training level. And she had a leg injury, so she came back to me and was. At that point, I had was in like seventy four or five, and I was had just moved to a farm from the city, and it, so I turned her out and didn't do much with her, and then and she was. I don't know, six months, six months getting well. It wasn't a dire thing, but it was enough to give her six months off. Then Helmut Gratz's son, uh, not uh, Mike, but Glenn, course for the preliminary young riders or and or pony club and the Radnor three-day event, the horse he had qualified on for all these things had been hurt or couldn't go, and so I called him up and said, you know, you've got three to four months to put this mare back into work, and if you want to take her, she's not doing anything. So I loaned her to Glenn Gratz, who, who took her to, to one training level event, then went prelim, and then went, did Pony Club rally, uh, national rally with her and then in eventing, and then went to Radnor and was second or third at Radnor, I think, um, in her first three-day event, uh, low-level three-day event, prelim level. And then... He then, next year, I think he won every prelim he went in and ultimately went intermediate, at which point Jack Lagoff and Mike Plum were doing clinics in Alabama, and I, Glenn wanted to take her down there to do those, and I said, sure. So I went down, and he did the clinics, and he was chosen as a young rider candidate, and then, the, I don't know, a couple of weeks later, Mike Plum had a clinic, and a couple of weeks after that, I got a phone call saying uh, we would like to buy this horse from Diane Mara. And I said, oh, I didn't think anybody would want to buy a 15 one-hand pinto pony. And she said, well, we're very interested. Mike Plum saw her and thought she would be a good match for our daughter, Kim. So I said, well, I have to think about this because that had not crossed my mind. So long story shorter, um, I called back and I said, I really just don't know how to price her. So they made me an offer and I doubled it and they paid it and off she went to become the horse of the Mars. At the time that she was delivered or going to get there, Kim was kicked in the face by some other horse uh, and lost an eye and broke a jaw and did everything else. So it was a long time before she got back to riding. When she did, she realized her depth perception was not very good, and so she did very, very well in the dressage phase, but then had real troubles in the cross-country. That led to Torrance Watkins being called in as the rider at Jimmy Wofford's and Mike Plum's suggestion. And that is where the history really started when she won the selection trials and then went to Burley uh, on the team and was second by six-tenths of a point in her first advanced three-day event at Burley and then went on to the bronze medal in Fontainebleau in 1980. And she was a life-changing horse, too. It was, it was wonderful. I went to Burley and I went to France to see her go. And when I went to the stables in Burley when I got special permission, 
there was her halter hanging on the door with still my name on it, which really almost had me in tears. I thought that was incredibly nice and wonderful. They could have changed it. You know, I certainly didn't expect to see that. And I have that halter today. They gave it to me at her retirement ceremony. Special memories, Edith, and I'm sure you have lots of other horse stories and indeed hunting stories, but I I do uh, want to see if I can pick maybe one or two stories from the time when your daughters, as you said, Sarah and Elizabeth, both horsewomen in their own own right, and they hunted from a very early age too. Any very special memories of fox hunting with the children? The most memorable was starting the children fox hunting when we did not have hilltopping or second fields like you do today. And so there were no gates, and the only way you could hunt was to jump. And that there, were, there was just no other field or no other way to do it. And my children were a little too small to jump because they could get popped off. And ponies, it, it's hard to put them on a horse farther to fall, and the ponies jump so hard it jumps them off. And so we wanted, they wanted to go hunting and we wanted to take them. So my older sister, bless her heart, and I rigged a system of, we didn't take both at the same time, but we'd take one at a time. And the older one was obviously readier sooner. And we would go out and we would go to the meet and we would stay at the back. And when we got to a jump, the kid would jump off and either Ruth, my sister, or I would pony the pony over the fence or lead it over the fence the kid would scramble over the fence we'd throw her back on and i'd get back on and then off we'd go as fast as we could possibly go to catch up and we kept up pretty well we were exhausted by the end of the day because sometimes we'd jump 20 fences which meant you had to do this little rigmarole 20 times and but and then you ran a lot i think it made my children sort of enjoy that exhilaration of running and jumping because once they got to jumping then it was it was really fun they loved it when we'd go out on rides and training rides for the horses and jump through the country uh, but that was probably the most memorable one of the most memorable thing was starting them that way subsequently years later my sister and several other people and I started initiating hilltopping and we were instrumental in putting in gates and starting a field for older people and younger people so that they could start to enjoy hunting and young horses could get out in a more leisurely way and the older folks who couldn't jump anymore could still enjoy hunting. And it it really, really was a boon to this hunt here at Iroquois. And I, I think more kids got started again because of it, because there was just, you know, the kids had to be big enough and had to know how to jump before they could ever start to, to go fox hunting. And I think it was just, a, you know, that was a wonderful happening. The only other really funny incident that happened was we had a joint meet, a visiting hunt from Tennessee or somewhere, and I was leading the field when I was master. And I'm a pretty good multitasker. And it was at the beginning of having radios, and we were really running on a run with, and I probably had 30 or 40 people behind me. And this one lady from the visiting hunt came up to me later and said, I cannot believe how you can jump and talk on the radio at the same time, know where we are, where we're going, and make sure nobody's left behind. I said, well, sort of multitasking. When you've got to do it, you've got to do it. But that, that just made me laugh when it was you know, brought up to me later. 
Well, obviously fox hunting has been a lifelong passion, but another one that has been your passion, as we touched on earlier, Edith, is the, your involvement with trails and uh, making yeah. new trails. And during this time, of course, you've also covered a lot of ground, not just fox hunting overseas, but with worldwide travel and, and obviously discovering trails around the world and some very interesting adventures to different parts of the globe. What are your fondest and favorite, most favorite memories of those overseas travels? I think probably the highlight was uh, Mongolia. I went to Mongolia for two weeks, and we rode on a specific riding trip with a company called Bujum Expeditions based in Bozeman, Montana. They were wonderful was adventure travel at its peak. My doctor, who gave me all the, you know, funky shots you have to have before you go, said to me, why Mongolia? He and his nurses didn't even know where it was. And I said, well, it's a horse connection. It's one place I can go where you can ride with the people and live the way they're living, that they've lived that way for thousands of years. And they're nomads, and you go out and you there are no fences and it's forever and ever and it's a huge country and they still live that way and it's civilization has taken over everywhere else in my life so i went and we literally we rode for 12 or 14 days and we started out by lake hofskal which is one of the lakes that's considered to have about three percent of the world's fresh water in it it's so deep and big and we rode from there to the Siberian border where we met up with the reindeer people who nomad, live nomadically there. And all the country in between was changing and awesome. And we've learned how they lived, how they packed up and moved, how they managed their herds, not just the reindeer people, but the other Mongolian families. We never went through a fence or a gate unless it was in someone's yard uh, built up around a house in maybe some little tiny small town it was the most vast country I've ever been in and the most friendly people none of whom speak English way out in the boonies but we had interpreters and we had guides and it, it truly was a wonderful experience and the most delightful people and they put on the festival, which is sort of the Nadam festival, which is sort of like our 4th of July. They only do three sports, horse racing, wrestling, and archery. So we attended that, and I mean, the kids ride these horses, but they're, it's as fancy and, a, and it's as important to them as the Kentucky Derby is to us. It, 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 they, they race for miles and miles and miles, and they start off in the morning, and they go way, way, way far away, and then they race all the way back to wherever the festival is being held. Then you get word sent by horseback as to when they're coming. Out of that trip, I think the two, well, maybe the one most interesting development was that you never saw, traffic didn't exist unless it was horse riders or yaks and carts or horses and carts. You didn't see tractors, you didn't see cars, you didn't see motorcycles. Roads that are listed on their maps were just dirt tracks. But the one thing that really was fun was this guy rode up on a horse with a one of an old fashioned metal small sized cream can on his saddle in front of him. And it was full of yogurt and he wanted to sell the can. So we, the people on this trip, twelve of us, bought the can of yogurt, which was probably two gallons or so 
was the best yogurt I've ever take, tasted in my life. We kept the can till it was all gone, and then the next rider who came by going the other direction, we gave the can back to take back to its original owner that had sold, sent us the yogurt in the first place. So that was just a real cool happening during the ride that we that we were on but it was it was adventure travel at its best it was truly fun and exhilarating and i think africa is sort of next on the list i rafted down the zambezi river for five days over class five rapids and i had never fought water or rafted before in my life but that was exhilarating as well i have a very good friend here who invites me to do things like would you like to go climb mount kilimanjaro oh yeah would you like to raft down the zambezi river oh sure and that's created things I probably wouldn't have done without her saying, I'd like to do this, let's do it together. Well, lots of adventure travels out of the saddle as well, isn't it? Yeah. Not, not least of all, some you found some time for sailing in the Greek island and scuba yep. diving in Belize. But, yep. of course, now you're, you're, most of your time is taken up with the trail advocacy work that you're doing in mainly in Kentucky. And Correct. you also mentioned the wagon trains that you you do for fun as well. What is a, a typical uh, week or month for Edith Conyers today? Well, today it's uh, farming and going to meetings and answering emails about putting on a conference next year, the Southeastern Equestrian Trails Conference in 2012 is being hosted in Lexington, Kentucky by the Horse Council and the Backcountry Horsemen. Um, I... I uh, I, I'm spending way too much time on the computer and way too much time going to meetings, and I'm involved in way too many volunteer organizations. But because I have friends in high places this year, the last three or four years, namely the governor and his wife, whom I've hunted with and taught their children and done horse business with and known for years and years and years, they were neighbors down the road a ways before I moved, um, Jane Bashir, who's the current First Lady, asked me to please would I help with the trails. She had a vision of a cross-country trail going across the state. And I said, well, I won't chair it, but I'll help with trails in the state. So that got me started, and I, I couldn't very well say no to a good friend and who needed me when I'm in my, another passionate area that she knows I love. And that has been a learning experience as well. I've gotten to know about a lot more about dealing with public land managers such as Fish and Wildlife and, and local parks like we Masterson Station Park is a city park. So we have everything from city-county parks on up to federal lands that we have to deal with the land managers because there are trails in these areas and the bikers and the hikers and the ATV people would like to get the horses off for various different reasons. And we are at risk of losing more and more trails for public use, not only on public lands, but anywhere. I mean, even private lands like mining companies that have old reclaimed strip lines or timber companies and things. They, the liability issue has been great. Uh, the maintenance of the trails has been great. And so the need to increase the volunteer effort has been absolutely greater because none of the organizations and none of the uh, things like Fish and Wildlife and Federal National Parks and Forest Service uh, have enough money, and they've got, they, they're so tied up in bureaucratic issues that they can't, uh, they spend a lot of time committing themselves to what the Washington, D.C. requires of them, and they don't have a whole lot of time or money to get out on the trails and clear 
trees that have fallen over and deburn water bars and um, in, improve creek crossings. And so we started this Backcountry Horsemen of Kentucky, which is an offshoot of the Backcountry Horsemen of America, of which there's probably 25 states and involved in that national movement. And we've started that same movement in Kentucky to try to improve the situation for public use trails, non-motorized public use trails on private and public lands. And so that's been a learning experience and a, and a quite educational one uh, of figuring out how to work with the land managers and try to increase their involvement with allowing and working with volunteers, which for me locally has been a huge challenge because the district ranger nearest to me does not openly want to be bothered with volunteers. And that's come about 180 degrees since five years ago, and that's been a really, really good thing in that he now lets us do things that he didn't let us do before, and he turns to us for signage for the horse people, where to put it, what to say about trail changes. Uh, worked very closely with him with this trail system that's local to Cave Run Lake, trying to get that initiative off the ground, which is still in due process. And it's been very tiring, tiresome, aggravating, frustrating. Uh, my fuse gets shorter and shorter with my patience as I get older and older and have to go slower and slower with working with people. But it's worth it in the long run because I think we're going to create more trails and save more trails than we would have if we didn't start these efforts that were initially really started by Jane Bashir. Well, of all the things that you've done with horses over the years, Edith, which, which of them would you be most proud of? Oh, boy. I don't know. I, I, I think I'm pretty proud of everything I've done with horses, with the exception of those horses that I couldn't fix or make work. I've been happy with driving. I, I drove as a kid, and then I didn't drive for a long time. Then I drove... My young hunters, I drove them at a younger age so we could do more with them without getting on their backs and hurting their legs by doing too much. Then I got really, really busy in the breeding and brokering and boarding and training and all that stuff business, so I quit driving completely. Then as I got older and 10 years ago broke my back, I asked the doctor, if I can't ride, can I drive? And he said, yes, if it's some old broke thing. And so I said, I promise. And that got me started in driving again, and I drove single for years, and then I wanted to do wagon trains, so that, that meant I didn't want an 18-hand Belgian. So if you don't have an 18-hand Belgian, you have two 14-hand halflingers, which make a holinger. And so, <laughs> so that got me, because the two halflingers can pull as much as the one big Belgian can do, and I can't get the harness on the Belgian, but I can sure get it on two ponies. So that got me started, and then now I'm driving this cute little caravan, and I've been to Washington State for a month to do a 250-mile wagon train across Washington, been to Indiana, and did one just a couple of weeks ago that was about 150 miles in Indiana and Kentucky. I uh, used to do one. We did It doesn't happen anymore. They had a 100-mile one that went from Cynthiana, Kentucky, up to Fawcett, Ohio, um, toward West Union, and we crossed the Ohio River. It was great fun, and we'd camp out. Organizers would find places for us to camp. Uh, the one in Indiana does all the cooking for breakfast and dinner for you, and the one and every all the others I've done I've had to cope myself with with cooking and 
food and stuff, which is fine, you know, ahead of time. They've all been quite well organized and tremendous fun, and it's such a wonderful way to traverse roads with very little traffic at a slow pace. You can observe the flora and the fauna and go truly see places I would never take time to just drive slowly through at 10 miles an hour or five miles an hour. I've seen areas of Kentucky and other parts of the world with the wagon and on horseback, but especially with the wagon, where you really, uh, you just wouldn't see it any other way. Well, clearly you've been not only inspirational with what you've done with horses over the years, Edith, but also influential. What would you like your legacy to be when you look back on the involvement that you've had in the horse world? Oh, I don't know the answer to that one either. Um, I would... hmm, That's a tough one. I I think that, that it would be to say with with patience and diligence and being responsibility for your actions, you can do anything. Wonderful. Well, on that note, uh, Edith, again, a wonderful inspiration for future generations. Thank you so much for taking us down memory lane today. You're so welcome, and thank you for having me. Please join me again next time when we hear from another equestrian legend. Until then, thank you for listening.